Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Political Science Department of Providence College. My name is William Hudson, Professor of Political Science and host of this podcast. Almost exactly a year ago, Professor Tony Afinia was my guest on Beyond Your Newsfeed to discuss Latinos and American politics. I remember that conversation as one of the most informative of our past episodes. Now that we are only about five weeks away from the 2020 election, I thought listeners would benefit from Dr. Afinia's insights into how Latino voters will affect the upcoming election. As listeners may remember, Professor Afinia is the political science department's expert on race and ethnic politics. His course, Race and Politics in the Americas, which analyzes the historic role race has played in politics throughout the Western hemisphere, draws enthusiastic reviews from our students every year. Tony, welcome back to Beyond Your Newsfeed. Thank you very much for having me, so, Dr. Hudson. Why don't we begin by you just giving us kind of an overview of the you know, key issues and controversies in the Latino community in, in regards to the upcoming election. That's a, a real important question. And I, I think uh, to begin with, listeners need to understand that political science looks at elections and public attitudes very differently than the a narrative that you read in the newspapers or that you see on television. Uh, journalists are always looking for the hook. They're always looking for the headline that will draw readers or viewers' attention. And consequently, they sometimes lead the public down the wrong road. Uh, the public sometimes is encouraged to think about the wrong things if their only source of information is journalism without any political science in the mix. So one of the things I like to do in environments like this is to pull the conversation back to what we know about public opinion and public attitude based on survey research methodology that is almost a hundred years old now. Uh, political scientists have learned over the years how to randomly sample the American public and then analyze the responses that we get from those people in comparison to the broader population and we can even track those attitudes as they change over time. So uh, I'll give you one example of that and then I'll talk about what we find when we look at data. You've recently heard, uh, if you've been following the news about the campaign, that the Democratic candidate for president, uh, former Vice President Joe Biden, is experiencing something of an enthusiasm gap in places like Florida, that Latinos are not as enthusiastic about Joe Biden as they were about Hillary Clinton, for instance. Now, this is measured using a question that says, how enthusiastic are you about the candidate? And they name the candidate. And what we find as political scientists, that even though that question has gotten a lot of attention the last week or two, that the answers to that question are almost unrelated to how people will vote and even whether or not they will vote. People will vote for a candidate that they're not enthusiastic about if that candidate is promoting the issues that they care about and if the polling place is accessible and if voting rights are protected and so on. So the much more important questions to ask Latino voters, even in battleground states like Florida, is what are the issues that you're concerned about? 
and how do the candidates match up to those issues. Now, fortunately, we have some really fresh data. In fact, some of it was just announced yesterday, uh, September 22nd. Some of it was announced two days ago, September 21st. Uh, so what we know from those data, first of all, this is Latinos nationally. 91% of Latino registered voters are almost certain they will vote or probably will vote. And the numbers are 76, say there's 76% say they're certain to vote. Another 14% say they will probably vote. Tony, That's 91%. How does that compare to previous elections from your knowledge? It's higher. It, it's higher. Because I know traditionally a lot of political scientists have historically said Latinos are less likely to vote than other groups like, say, African-Americans. But you're saying in this election, that may not be true. Well, well yes and no. Th these data yeah. are for registered voters. The big dividing line between Latinos who vote and Latinos who don't vote okay. are, is voter registration. Among registered voters... Latino turnout rates are comparable to every other group. So the trick for Latinos is to get people registered. Once they're registered, they will vote. The obstacles to registration are partly around mobilization effects. Um, Latinos tend to be more transient. They move around more often. It's, more, it's very difficult to stay registered if you're moving from apartment to apartment, from city to city. Um, there are some bureaucratic obstacles to registering. Most states have made voter registration much easier, but it sometimes the, the process for registering is, is not always clear to people. Um, there is a factor of naturalization that a larger share of the Latino population is non-citizens, and of course they cannot register. But that's, that's not the most important problem. The most important problems confronting voter registration for Latinos are these other issues, the mobility issues, um, the class and, and, and race issues and the administrative issues, how, how people get registered and stay registered. Also, in some states, right. of course, they're purging registered voters. So people who think they're registered find, go to vote and find out that they've been stricken from the voting rolls because they have the same last name as some ex-felon who, who's, who's got a warrant. So um, getting back to the point, among registered voters, Latinos are just as likely to vote as anyone else, if not slightly more likely. 91% uh, is actually higher, higher than the typical uh, turnout rate for Americans as a whole. So uh, getting that out of the way, Latinos, Latino registered voters are planning to vote, so they will be a factor in this year's election. What do Latino voters care about? Well, we have two different data sets, as I said, one uh, which was just released yesterday, uh, which is week three of the national tracking poll. Uh, sponsored by the National Association of Latino Elected and Appointed Officials, the largest organization of Latino public officials in the country. And the uh, polling organization is Latino Decisions, which is the largest and most effective uh, polling organization that specializes in um, uh, survey research with Latinos. In fact, for every Latino decision survey, the respondents, the people who are called, are asked whether they would like to conduct the survey in Spanish or English, and either one, all of the survey researchers are bilingual. So these are the most accurate surveys of Latinos in the country, much more accurate than the exit polls or any of the English-only polls that are being done by most of the large organizations. So with that said, the number one issue uh, for Latinos nationwide is responding to the coronavirus pandemic. That is by far the, the top issue, and we'll, we'll talk in a minute about why that is. The second issue 
is the cost of health care and restraining the cost of health care. Uh, the third issue is uh, racism, addressing racism and discrimination in America. The fourth issue is stopping the Trump agenda. <laughs> the fifth issue is discrimination, stopping discrimination against immigrants and Latinos. And way down at number six is immigration reform. Now, as you can see from that ranking, none of those issues are issues on which the Republican Party or the Republican candidate has been very strong from the perspective Tony, I, of it, Latinos. As you go down the list, uh, from it, the pandemic. it struck me that uh, the, the concerns of Latino voters, uh, some, most of them are, are also on those lists of the concerns of suburban women that are supposedly uh, so important in this election. You know, coronavirus, uh, 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 you know, is on the top uh, for everybody and, mm -hmm. and health care. So, uh, so when there's all this talk about, you know, segmenting the, the electorate and well, you got to make, you got to talk about immigration with Latinos and you got to talk about coronavirus and health care with white suburban women. That's just nonsense. Uh, yeah. And the, the, the other issue that's in this, in this top ranking is, um, improving wages and creating more jobs. And that's also obviously an issue for everybody. So it, it's one of the insights that this kind of uh, very uh, rigorous social science research is giving us, is that Latinos aren't that different from anybody else. Latinos may be more concerned about racism directed against Latinos, that makes sense. Latinos may be more concerned uh, about immigration reform, that makes more sense. But on the major issues of healthcare, the coronavirus pandemic, jobs and income, um, they're very much like everyone else. So uh, in California, uh, we have some similar results. The top issue, and this, these uh, survey results are from late August, so they're not quite as fresh as the Naleo. Uh, but the top issues for California Latinos responding to COVID, 47% chose that as the top issue, uh, lowering the cost of health care, 25%. Unemployment, creating more jobs, 22. Wages and incomes, 21. Stopping discrimination against immigrants and Latinos, 20. All the way down, once again, number six is immigration. So the, what, what Latino uh, uh, politics scholars have been saying for several years now, and it's beginning to sink in with political candidates, is that the right way to campaign to Latinos is not to foreground immigration, and, and talk about immigration as the number one issue for Latinos. It's not even necessarily to reach out to Latinos in Spanish because three-fifths of Latinos are fluent in English. Um, the vast majority of young Latinos are fluent in English and an increasing percentage are more fluent in English than they are in Spanish. So the conventional ways that candidates try to appeal to, we'll call it, will be charitable, appeal to Latino voters is by talking about immigration reform and by running advertisements in Spanish, sometimes bad Spanish what's even, as well. What's even and worse, throwing in a Spanish word or two in a speech, mispronounced usually. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, right. like partial Spanglish, <laughs> yeah, mispronounced partial Spanglish. Um, so increasingly, people are being told, candidates are being told, campaign managers are, are learning that the right way to address Latinos is respectfully uh, about issues that they care about and with policy prescriptions that are uh, that address those issues. Now, again, getting back to the list, the Republican Party, 
whether, you, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, the fact is the Republican Party doesn't have a lot to offer Latinos on any of these top issues. Um, and that's why uh, increasingly uh, we see concern on the part of the uh, Republican Party, the Republican administration, uh, over the effectiveness of their outreach to Latinos. And one last point on that. In fact, um, in the, the third week of the tracking poll, uh, at 16%, 16% of Latinos said the most important issue was stopping Trump and the Republican agenda. So there's a solid minority, a solid group of Latino voters for whom the top issue is Trump himself and the Republican agenda itself. Um, let's talk briefly about COVID just to get a, a better sense of why the COVID epidemic would right. rank so, so high for Latinos. So Latinos have been as, most adversely affected by COVID, right? Yeah, and in, in three ways. Um, one is uh, Latinos are much more likely to work in the kinds of jobs that are considered essential, and therefore they cannot work from home. They have to actually go to work. And those jobs are often frontline jobs that put them in contact or face-to-face -face with the public, so they're at greater risk of contracting COVID. So they're, they're, they're more likely to have a job that requires them to go to the job. They can't telecommute. They can't work from home. And those jobs are more likely to put them at, at risk. Um, so that 31% of Latinos personally know someone who has died from COVID. Now, when you imagine that, that 200,000 is a huge number, but 200,000 is just a fraction of 1% of the American population. But 31% of Latinos know someone who's died, and another 35%, or if, and 35%, including those 31, have either themselves contracted COVID or know someone who has. So that's the first impact, the direct kind of health and, and mortality impact. The second, and this comes from the data released on Monday by a survey uh, conducted of uh, Latino households by National Public Radio, NPR, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and Harvard's Chan School of Public Health, found that 72% of Latino households reported serious problems paying for housing, uh, uh, monthly bills, and basic expenses since the outbreak began. 72%. That's double the rate for white families or white households. And it's even higher than for African-American. 60% uh, of black households said that they'd experienced that severe dis distress. 41%, uh, let's go back to Latinos, 46% of Latinos, 46% of Latinos had exhausted all or most of their savings. And 15% had no savings at all before the outbreak. So more than half of the Latino households in the country have exhausted their savings. And, are face and another 20% on top of those are having severe difficulty, or 30% rather, on top of those are having severe difficulty paying their bills every month. So you've got that secondary impact, which is the, ec the direct economic impact of the uh, pandemic on Latinos. And the, the, third, um, uh, the third major impact uh, that Latinos households and individuals have experienced from COVID is the increasing awareness of the inequality, the inequity in the healthcare system, which is leading to these numbers. Latinos are not unaware of the fact that they're being impacted much more greatly economically as well as medically in terms of their households. And therefore, you have the direct health effect, you have the direct or indirect economic effect, 
And you have the attitudinal kind of emotional effect of Latinos knowing that they're, they're facing discrimination, they're facing unfair treatment in healthcare. And that's why the numbers for discrimination against Latinos and racism are going up. Historically, Latinos have not uh, expressed a great deal of concern in public opinion polls about discrimination. What Latinos typically do when they're asked whether or not, have you faced discrimination? Most Latinos say, no, not personally. Do you think discrimination is a problem? Oh yeah, it's a big problem. So you've had this mismatch between Latinos who say they have not personally faced discrimination, but they believe discrimination is an issue. But now, both groups are rising. Latinos who feel that they have personally faced uh, racial discrimination uh, or ethnic discrimination because of their uh, Latino identity, and Latinos who feel uh, that the Latino community as a whole faces that discrimination. Both of those numbers are going up, and the coronavirus pandemic is, is very Tony, much a part Tony, of that. That brings to mind the, the protest this summer, the Black Lives Matters protest, they've been, been called against racism and police brutality. Uh, the emphasis in the press has been on uh, brutality against African-Americans and it's the, the protests have all been sort of labeled Black Lives Matter. Uh, what about the Latino community? What, to what extent has it been involved in the protests and what has been the reaction? Uh, to those protests among Latinos? Uh, yeah, the, again, there's a mismatch between how the media portrays or how people perceive uh, Latino support for or participation in Black Lives Matter. Um, if you look, just briefly, let's look at the, the survey data again. Addressing racism and discrimination is tied with lowering the cost of health care at number two for Latinos. Now, that's a separate question from stopping discrimination against immigrants and Latinos, which is uh, somewhat lower, but, but still high. So it, apparently, a significant number of Latinos, about a third of Latinos, think that racism is one of the top political issues in the country. So that's the kind of the, the attitudinal background. But when you ask Latino respondents in particular how they feel about Black Lives Matter or how they feel about the Black Lives Matter protest. For instance, in California, the survey in August of California Latinos, 75% supported the Black Lives Matter protest. Only 25% did not support it. And in fact, many of those protests have included uh, many, many Latinos in addition to uh, non-Latinos and non-black, white, or Asian participants. Uh, you probably are aware, most of your listeners may be aware, that Latinos are much more likely to get coronavirus than others, uh, three and a half times the rate of whites. Native Americans have the same high rate. So Native Americans and Latinos are in some states more likely than African Americans to fall victim to coronavirus. And in every state, they're about, at least about the same. So the, the, the sense of threat that is being felt by the black community in particular with respect to police violence is also being shared by other non-white groups, particularly Native Americans and Latinos, with respect to coronavirus. Well, after a while, this all gets merged together in your mind. You know, if, you, if you're facing additional police violence, you're facing inequities in the healthcare system, you're facing inequities in the labor markets and higher unemployment, at a certain point, 
people who are subject to the same kinds of discriminatory outcomes share the same attitudes about what the problem is and what the solution is. So, and that's beyond the fact that Latinos in many states are subject to police violence at rates almost as high as African Americans. The black population in California is very small. The Latino population in California is many times greater than the black population. So, whereas police violence in a place like Los Angeles County seems to target black residents more than anyone else, it's also true that many, many Latinos uh, are subject to police violence. Um, the, numbers, the numbers are not as high, but the percentages are comparable um, in, in some places. And places like Colorado, Arizona, um, New Mexico, the black populations are quite small. The Latino populations are much more likely to be the victims of police violence. Which means that in those states and in those cities, if the black community or advocates for the black and other minority communities organize a protest, there will be Latinos at that protest as well as African Americans. And that is seen in these California data. This Latino support for Black Lives Matter, 75% for Black Lives Matter, is very, very high. Um, And it's even highest, that's overall, among 18 to 25-year-old Latinos, it's 86% support Black Lives Matter. So the idea that is not very common, but I have seen it as well. The idea that Latinos' support for Black Lives Matter may be lukewarm, it, it's just false. It's, it's not borne out by the data. The data show that Latinos are very concerned about Black Lives, uh, the Black Lives Movement, and are actually participants in protests. And if, even if they're not participants in protests, they express strong support for the yeah, goals Tony, of those protests. It makes me think, you know, in American political history, we have a long tradition of elites particularly trying to divide ethnic groups, uh, trying to make distinguish between Latinos, African-Americans, and your data are suggesting that, that in, in this era at least, that's not working, uh, that these groups are, are seeing that they're not competitors, but they're in fact united against uh, common obstacles. Yeah, um, the common trope that blacks and Latinos are, in conf- are inherently in conflict is, is really part of a, a white supremacist framing of race, right? Because, well, to begin with, blacks and Latinos share many of the same spaces. 86% of the Latino population in the United States lives in cities, which means to the extent that the African-American population, at least in the West and the Northeast and the Midwest, is concentrated in cities. It's, it's somewhat more rural in the Southern region. Um, but that means that blacks and Latinos share the same urban spaces. That means they're represented by the same city councilors, and the, the, they're, they're vulnerable to the same police department, and their kids go to the same public schools, and uh, they attend the same fest parks, uh, park festivals and music festivals and so on. The reality is, if black and Latino conflict, social conflict, were as endemic and as pervasive as we're sometimes led to believe, there would be a lot more actual conflict going on in cities than there is today. There's very little racial conflict in cities between blacks and Latinos. To the extent that there's racial conflict, it's between whites and non-whites, right? It's, it's the, the white supremacist rallies, the Charlottesville kinds of things. Uh, you don't see Latinos uh, joining in the, the, and you don't generally see Latinos joining in racist protests directed against black people. Okay? But you will find many Latinos in protest against racists, against white supremacy. So this, this trope that's out there, that blacks and Latinos are competing for the same space and they're inherently in conflict, it's, it's just not true. Uh, in reality, cooperation 
between black and Latino communities is, is much more common than competition, even at the elite level. The Congressional Black Caucus and the Congressional Hispanic Caucus work together every day on almost everything, even immigration. Many uh, African-American members of the Congressional Black Caucus who uh, faced some concern back in their home districts, uh, districts in the south side of Chicago, predominantly black congressional districts, there has always been some concern about immigration because African-American workers have learned over the, over the centuries that they will be the first to lose their jobs as immigrants are recruited or uh, brought into the, their place of employment uh, and offered lower wages. So it is true that immigrants, not just Latino immigrants, but immigrants in general throughout American um, the history of American industry, American, the American economy, immigrants have often been used to suppress wages and divide the workforce and so on. That, that's, that's, students of labor history will tell you about incident after incident. So the idea that some African-American workers would be concerned about immigration is not unusual and it's not particularly surprising. So even in those congressional districts where back home there may be strong support for immigration restrictions among African-American voters, that many of those African-American members of Congress will kind of reaffirm that concern when they're back home talking to their constituents. But when they get to Washington, they authorize the leadership of the Congressional Black Caucus to go ahead and work together in alliance with the Congressional Hispanic Caucus on immigration reform. So at the elite level, there's cooperation. At the street level, there's cooperation. The place where there is endemic competition between blacks and Latinos are in electoral politics where there's only one seat available. So if you have black and Latino voters sharing the same neighborhood and there's only one seat on the city council representing that ward, in order for a Latino to, take that, to, to sit in that seat, they may have to replace an African-American who's held that seat for years. Uh, you see that in places like New York City. You see this ongoing replacement of black elected officials by uh, Latino elected officials. One final point to make about blackness and Latinos. Many Latinos right. are black. <laughs> you know, there are 40 million, there are 40 million black Americans uh, or black people in the United States. There are 250 million black people in Latin America and the Caribbean. So to the extent that uh, Latinos from Mexico and Colombia and the Dominican Republic, migrants coming to the mainland from Puerto Rico, immigrants from Cuba, many of those people are, Afri are, are African descent. Uh, many of those people are black, especially the Puerto Rican and Dominican population in the U.S. So the entire Northeast, from Maryland to Maine, um, has large populations of Afro-Latinos. And those Afro-Latinos live in and work in and go to school in the same neighborhoods as African-Americans. And in many cases, um, they get married and they have children. And the children are like, I'm black, but I'm Latino and I'm African-American, so I'm like double black. Um, when, uh, historically, when the Puerto Rican population first began to move to New York City in large numbers in the 1920s, the vast majority of them were black. They were Afro-Puerto Ricans. They worked in the cigar industry. They knew how to roll cigars. These were skill, skilled cigar rollers. So they were brought to New York City in the 1920s to work in the cigar factories in Manhattan. But they were told they had to live in Harlem because that's where black people live. So there's a reason Spanish Harlem is in Harlem. Because even back in the 1920s, the first uh, Latin, large numbers of Latino immigrants to New York City were not technically immigrants because they're coming from one part of the United States, that is Puerto Rico, to another part, which is Manhattan, um, but they were black. And one of the most famous 
scholars of black history in America was Arturo Schomburg, an Afro-Puerto Rican. And the Schomburg Center at, at the City University of New York, named for Schomburg, he had the world's largest collection of uh, African history um, document, African-American history documents and so on. So he was a, a black, his, a, a student of black history, a black studies scholar, but he was Afro-Puerto Rican. So that, you know, it's very complicated when people start talking about blacks and Puerto Ricans, because at least in the Northeast, you're talking about this, or blacks and Latinos rather, in the Northeast, right. but you may be talking about the so same I, people. You know, I've been curious, uh, there's been reports, you know, over the, the last few years, and particularly this year, about attempts by, uh, conservative, right-wing conservatives, uh, I'm thinking now of the Koch network, uh, making these sort of outreaches to Latinos. And the, the, the whole premise seems to be a white supremacist kind of premise because they, they talk about, we can convert Latinos to being conservative Republicans if we make appeals to their willingness to work hard or their conservative yeah. social values. Then that, by that, that yeah. they mean uh, opposition to abortion, and and there's a there's an underlying premise there that somehow uh, Latinos are going to be different from African Americans in that regard. Um, and what you're suggesting is that th those efforts, no matter how much money the Cokes put into it, uh, are are not going to in fact persuade a lot of Latinos to become conservative Republicans. Well, yes and no, um, because Latin America is a racially complex place. There are lots of white folks in Latin America as well, and they tend to be the wealthier part of the population. They tend to be the descendants of the Spanish conquistadors. They tend to still own land and plantations and mines and hotels and everything else. So there is a, um, a racial hierarchy in Latin America. It's a little more complicated than in the U.S. because there has been so much racial mixing over the centuries among uh, blacks, whites, uh, Native Americans, even Asian Americans. There's a very large Asian Pacific American population in Latin America. So when uh, Latino immigrants come to the United States from Latin America, or when Latin American culture infuses those Latino communities, even if the people there never lived in Latin America. Some of that racial hierarchy comes along. Some of those racial attitudes come along. So the, one of the reasons the Republicans and the conservative um, uh, kind of um, lobbyists and think tanks think that they can make inroads with Latinos is because there are already Latinos working with them, right? They're already conservative Latinos and have been for decades uh, in the Republican Party. Um, in the conservative think tanks and conservative organizations as well. Uh, George Bush, when he ran for governor of Texas, was getting in the mid-40s of the Latino vote, uh, 44, 45%. Um, that was because there is a sizable fourth, fifth, eighth, tenth generation Mexican-American population in Texas, which tends to be more affluent, more conservative, more uh, lighter skinned, uh, more integrated both racially and culturally with you know, white America. So there was a base. And then George Bush built on that base by appointing dozens of Latino judges all across Texas. So there are places where there is a constituency for those kinds of conservative or Republican appeals, but it seems to have a ceiling. And what we see in the most recent tracking poll, um, the weekly um, Latino tracking poll, is that 25% of Latinos in the United States have a favorable opinion of Donald Trump. Now, of course, uh, 60, 
what's the total? 71% have an unfavorable view. So they're, they're, the, the, the attempt to recruit more Latinos into conservative or Republican politics will have an effect, but it'll be one or two percentage points because it's running up against the headwind of 70 or more percent of the Latino population that uh, is opposed to the policies and the, uh, the personality of, of Donald Trump. In, in Colorado in 2012, Obama got 87% of the Latino vote. 87% is approaching right. African-American support levels for the Democratic Party. So there are places, Los Angeles, um, Colorado, New York City. Donald Trump is going to get almost no Latino votes out of New York City. He will get some Latino votes out of Texas and, and uh, Arizona and Florida. Um, so to, to get back to your question about this kind of long-standing desire to turn Latinos into Republicans slash white-thinking people. To a certain extent, that will succeed because there already is a base, but its impact will be quite limited. And uh, in fact, the Trump administration has, has kind of uh, has put a blockade in, in the way of that effort because they've been so hostile to Latinos that even some of the inroads that uh, the Koch brothers and, and the Koch Foundation and the others have made are, are kind of, they've been set back. Yeah, so Tony, I, I, I've seen statistics in, in 2016, Latinos voted 58% for Clinton, uh, whereas African-Americans voted 88% for Clinton. That's a considerable gap. But those data are wrong. Those data are wrong. Those data are based on, I've never seen 58. I've seen, you know, 60s. Right. And those are from exit polls. Those are from Edison, Matowski, and the other exit polls. And those exit polls have been debunked repeatedly by Latino politics scholars who point out that the technology of exit polls and the kind of the management of the exit poll organizations, it kind of is biased against Latinos in a number of ways. The, if you're doing exit polls and you've got somebody standing outside a polling place with a clipboard, you want to be at a polling place that has lots of voters because you're paying that person the same amount, whether they talk to 50 voters or 500 voters. So there's a bias towards large polling places. There's also a bias towards polling places that are safe and accessible and where uh, the, the uh, exit pollsters who tend to be young white college students in, in many places uh, will be um, palatable and will get responses, right? You don't want voters refusing to answer the exit polls. Now, what all that leads to is the exit polls are concentrated in, in high uh, population suburban polling places. And then they try to mathematically correct for those known distortions. But if, you, if, if you're surveying voters at, a, at, a, at an affluent suburban polling place at a beautiful new high school with, with 2,000 voters, you're going to get some Latinos, but they're going to be more affluent, more conservative Latinos. So, so, it, so if you take their responses and you project them across all Latinos in the country, you're taking the attitudes of, of generally, not always, but generally lighter-skinned, more affluent, more conservative Latinos and projecting them over very low-income Latinos at a polling place in the Rio Grande Valley in South Texas where nobody voted for Donald Trump. So the, there's going to be a, there's a built-in bias based on that technology. The other built-in bias is they're conducted in English. 
So Spanish-speaking Latino uh, voters are very unlikely to find a Spanish-speaking exit pollster standing outside their polling place. Now, the alternative, which has proven to be much more accurate, even most famously in predicting the outcome of the Senate race in Nevada, where uh, Harry Reid was reelected, even though the, the pre-election polls showed him losing by four or five percentage points, the exit polls you know, indicated that he had lost. He actually won by five percentage points. That number had been predicted the Friday before the election by Latino decisions because they do what they call an election eve poll conducted in English or Spanish, and they, they make sure that the survey is done in the communities where Latinos live and from which Latinos will vote. So rather than letting the, the need to have large polling places with lots of voters willing to answer questions, which leads you into those suburban uh, polling places, the Latino Decision Survey is concentrated in places where Latino voters actually live, and they're conducted bilingually. And their uh, election eve poll was almost precisely, less than a percentage point off from the actual results on election day, and much, much better than the exit polls. So those no what they showed, uh, and th this was replicated in many, many places, whether you look at um, uh, neighborhoods that are predominantly Latino, or whether you look at states that have large Latino populations, or whether you look at polling places that have large Latino populations, the, the, the Election Eve data from Latino decisions was replicated at every level of American politics. When you look at places where Latinos actually live, and they showed almost 75% support for Clinton and less than 25% support for, for Trump. Those numbers are much more reliable than the exit poll results. So the, the bottom line is uh, Donald Trump at 71% favorable and 25% unfavorable is doing no better um, in 2020 than, um, than he did in uh, 2016 do you think he's going to do worse? Latinos. I mean, among Latinos. Is there any indication? He very well may do worse. A lot of that hinges on things that ne neither one of us can predict, like what will happen on Election Day with polling places. Will there be armed white supremacists patrolling po polling places in black and Latino communities? Uh, will ballots get lost in the mail? Uh, will there be an, out an outbreak of COVID in key places that keep people away from polling places. And, you know, we, there are too many uh, unknowns. And that's, that's one of the reasons, uh, even today talking to you, I, I'd like to focus on what we do know. We know what these data say. We know these data are scientifically valid and reliable. We know that the organization collecting these data are organizations that care about what the Latino community thinks. And they have a stake in honesty. They have a stake in the truth. They're not partisan organizations. If you're a military commander and you're thinking about launching a, a, a raid across the hills in the morning and you send your scouts over tonight, you want them to come back and tell you that they're facing tanks and artillery. You don't want them to come back and tell you what you want to hear, right? You want the truth. So the organizations that are conducting these surveys of Latinos have a stake in the truth because they are reflecting this information back to the Latino community. It doesn't help Latino voters to have false information about the configuration of Latino attitudes or Latino intentions. So the difference between these data <coughs> And the surveys re released by the Biden campaign or released by the Trump campaign are that Biden and Trump, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the Republican Senatorial Committee, those organizations releasing polls all have a stake in steering the debate in one direction or another. 
These scientific surveys that I've been giving you today don't have such a stake. Their, their goal is an accurate reflection of, of Latino attitudes. And the other group that does a lot of polling and, and talks a lot about polls, of course, the news media. While the news media is more likely to present information objectively compared to political campaigns, the news media has its own incentive to generate those big headlines to focus on conflict and controversy. Um, and sometimes the reality doesn't, uh, isn't very sexy. For instance, one reality um, is if we look, for instance, at the uh, data for uh, whether or not the Democratic Party is doing a good job reaching out to Latinos. This is the national tracking poll, right? And it, it's related to the question you ask about you know, whether or not Democrats are, are doing their job. Week one of the survey, that is three weeks ago, 55% of Latinos said the Biden and the Democrats were doing a good job. Week two, 53%. Week three, 58%. Now, there's been a slight increase in the share of Latinos who say that the Biden campaign is doing a good job. Um, almost half of all Latinos say that they've been contacted by a political campaign. That's somewhat higher um, than in the past. And 62% of them say they've been uh, they've been contacted by the Biden campaign. Now, is it newsworthy to say that nationally the, num the share of Latinos who say that the Democrats are doing a good job is rising slowly? That doesn't really sell newspapers or, or grab people's attention. It's, it's a, lot, a lot more uh, engaging for viewers to see a headline that says Biden facing enthusiasm gap compared to Clinton. So uh, I, I think it's important for your listeners to, again, as I said at the very beginning, to make this distinction between social science evidence, which is intended to be factual and intended to be truthful, and the evidence, in quotation marks, right, in air quotes, that other people are, are presenting, which is intended to convince the voters of something or to steer the voters in one First, direction Tony, or the, the presidential election in the United States is a state-by-state state election because of the Electoral College. And then we also have very important Senate races around the country. Uh, do you have some data on uh, Latino voters in various states, particularly some of these battleground states like Arizona or Florida or even North Carolina? And, and, and those are, particularly uh, Arizona and North Carolina have key Senate races. And there's, of course, Colorado. Um, any, any data about those races? I don't, I don't have any good recent data for the specific question you're asking, which is what are the, what, what are the voting intentions of Latinos in battleground states? Um, battleground states tend to have um, less frequent surveys, and those surveys tend to be smaller with much larger sampling errors. Um, for instance, Wisconsin, the, the Latino population in Wisconsin is 7.1%. So if you're surveying 400 people in Wisconsin, which is typical for some of the state-level polls, your sampling error is going to be bigger than the, than the Latino population. So, uh, you know, you do a poll one week, you might find, you know, that the Latino, uh, that 75% of Latino voters plan to vote for uh, Biden. You do the same survey three weeks later, and you'll find zero percent, you know, because the, the margin, well, it might, wouldn't be zero, but you, you'll find a, a much lower, much different percentage because your sampling error is so big. So before we can say anything confidently about 
voter intention, Latino voting intentions in battleground states, we need to wait a little bit closer to the election when the battleground states will have more frequent polling, when Latino decisions and other bilingual polling organizations will go into those states, and when the numbers of respondents gets bigger. When they start surveying a thousand voters in Wisconsin using bilingual surveys, then we'll be able to tell you something useful about Latino voters. Now, short of that, we can look at what Latino organizations are doing in those states. Are they registering voters? Are they uh, coordinating mail ballot drives? Are they working closely with the Trump administration or working closely with the, with the Biden campaign? Um, we can also look at the raw numbers, right? Because if, if you're only 3% of the population, your impact on the, the election is likely to be marginal at best. Um, in Florida, one of those battleground states you talked about, the Latino population is 26% of the total. Uh, it's, it's a slightly larger share of the voting age population, or, or slightly smaller share of the voting age population because Latinos tend to be younger. So a larger share of voting age um, people in Florida are non-Latino. The Latino population of Florida is also split pretty evenly now between more recent Puerto Rican and Central, Central American migrants and uh, migrants from the Dominican Republic and the more long-standing Cuban-American population concentrated in South Florida, which has historically been Republican. So uh, Latino community politics in Florida sometimes, often, has revolved around relationships with Cuba, uh, the U.S. government's relationship with the Castro regime, and so on. That's been changing dramatically over the last couple of decades as the number of Cuban-Americans who lived in Cuba prior to the revolution or were even children of people who migrated from Cuba, th their share of the Cuban-American population has been declining so that the Democratic Party share of Cuban-Americans has actually been increasing quite rapidly. And the most prominent, uh, most successful young, uh, recently elected politicians from the Cuban-American community have been Democrats. So you've, you've got some change even among Cuban-Americans, but the bigger change is there are now more Puerto Ricans living on the mainland than on the island many of those Puerto Ricans migrated to Florida and are now living around Orlando, Central Florida, the, the, uh, I, uh, the region around uh, Disney World and, and uh, the tourist regions in Central Florida, which is also an agricultural region. So those Puerto Ricans tend to be overwhelmingly Democrats. And because many of them migrated after Hurricane Maria, uh, the most recent stimulus to uh, migration from Puerto Rico, a lot of them really don't trust Donald Trump uh, because of the way he treated or mistreated Puerto right, Rico it's, after, it's after that hurricane. It's telling that uh, so, recently news, there were news reports that Trump has finally released millions of dollars in uh, hurricane relief that they had bottled up because uh, Trump was mad at Puerto Rico after Maria and the political leaders there. And miraculously, he's now released it as a blatant appeal to uh, pandering to Puerto Ricans in Florida, right? And yes, and, and it's, it's important for people to understand that this election is going to be close on, on some measure. Either the popular vote will be close nationally, that's not as likely, it's more likely that there, there will be a significant gap in the, in the popular vote nationally. But at the state level, in battleground states, it's likely to be very, very close, as it was last time. And the Electoral College might be very close as a consequence. So uh, the Trump administration is not looking to win the Latino vote. They're looking to shave a few percentage points off of Latino support for Biden. The same for African Americans. They're not, they know they can't win a majority of African American voters, but if they can shave a few percentage points, 
if Kanye West can draw some black voters into the uh, voting booth to vote for him, well, those are votes that would, would probably otherwise have gone to Joe Biden. So the kind of the support for Kanye West campaign that you see coming from the Republicans and, and, and from the Trump administration, the attempt to shave a few points uh, among the Puerto Rican voters in Florida using hurricane support for Puerto Rico, that's all they are. They're attempts to shave a few points. And that may work. That may be successful. So what the, what the other side is up against is the challenge of mobilizing voters. If every single Latino voted... Donald Trump would have no chance of winning significant numbers of Latino voters. I mean, it would, the, they would overwhelm the, the, the Biden vote would overwhelm the Trump vote. So suppressing the vote, erecting obstacles to mail voting, uh, about a third, almost a third of Latino voters uh, in the most recent surveys from last week said that they don't trust the mail-in voting system, which means those Latino voters, if they vote at all, are likely to vote in person which makes them vulnerable to last-minute scares about, you know, if there's an outbreak in, in Houston, Texas, just before Election Day, then those Latino voters who, who've been convinced that mail-in voting is not safe or reliable and were planning to vote in person, they're not going to be voting. So those kinds of Election Day effects um, might also shave a couple of percentage points. And, and that's, what, that's what's going to go on in this election. It's, it's going to be a ground war, slogging it out. It's hand-to-hand -hand combat. It's going to be a war of attrition. It's going to be won or lost on the basis of just a handful of, of uh, uh, percentage points. One last point to make about Latinos and this attempt to mobilize Latinos, um, either mobilize them not to vote for Biden or mobilize them in much less likelihood in much smaller numbers to vote for Trump, is there's a gender gap among Latinos as well. In the California poll, uh, this is from August, uh, late August of 2020, August 24th, it was in the field. Uh, the total unfavorable for Donald Trump among Latinos was 72%. Among Latinas, among Hispanic women, it's 77%. That's a significant, that's, this, this survey had more than 1,000 respondents, 1,200. The sampling error is only 2.8%. So that gap between men and women among Latino voters is significant. And let women, Latinas, in many places, are more likely to vote than men. So even if, and, and for the same reasons that you, you mentioned earlier, uh, white suburban women, the concerns that they have, imagine the additional concerns that Latino women, the Hispanic women have, on those same issues, on jobs and, and income, on COVID, on health care, and so on. Um, I, I know here in Rhode Island, um, um, I'm familiar with some of the work being done uh, in the uh, workforce development arena, you know, when, where the, the parts of state government and uh, third parties that are trying to um, fine-tune the workforce so that it matches the labor market of the future and so on. It's the latest thing in workforce development. Find out where there are actually going to be jobs and train people for those jobs, as opposed to the old system, which is train people for good jobs, even if they didn't exist. And one of the things we're finding is that many, many Latinas are, going, are entering the workforce because the, the men in their families who might have been working previously have lost their jobs. So for, for the first time in many years, some of these Hispanic women, now Hispanic women have always worked. I mean, uh, you, the, the labor force participation has always been high for all minority women, Latinas, uh, African-American women, uh, Asian-American women. But among Latinas, the family crisis posed by the coronavirus pandemic has 
led them to go get back into the workforce because they may be able to find a job even if someone else in the family cannot. So you've got the labor force, the labor market issues are coming down heavily on Hispanic women. The family uh, health care education issues, you know, the, the closer, closing of schools, the, the distance learning that families are being asked to do. You can see why women would be more concerned, like Hispanic women would be more concerned about some of these issues and why they might be less favorably inclined towards Donald Trump. So watch what happens. You're going to see that a lot of the Democratic Party mobilization of Latinos in the next several weeks is going to be targeted at women because it's, it's Hispanic women who are most likely to be inclined to vote against Donald Trump, whoever the Democratic candidate is. Because they don't necessarily have a favorable opinion. The, the favorable opinions of Joe Biden are not as high as the unfavorable opinions of Donald Trump. Uh, so uh, my, I, I would expect that's what you'll see in coming weeks, is a, is a targeted focus on Hispanic women, family issues, health care, and so yeah, on. Yeah, Tony, like you, I'm very concerned about the logistics for the voting this, this time and uh, the problems with uh, mail-in voting uh, and concerns around uh, in-person voting. Uh, but also, you know, counting those votes, uh, I, I'm very concerned that uh, many of the mail-in votes will be contested uh, uh, and, and many of those might, in fact, be invalid. So we have, may have an election in which the result, if it's really, really close, may turn on exactly which ballots are uh, thrown out for some reason. And there's, in different states, they have different rules about exactly how you count and different uh, justifications for invalidating a ballot. Um, so it's, it's going to be a real, a real mess. And it, it's, it's probably important in the context of this conversation to note that that problem of spoiled, what's called spoiled ballots, invalid ballots, falls much more heavily on black and Latino voters than it does on white voters. In 2000, we go back 20 years, Remember the election in Florida with the hanging chads and the long count? And uh, Bush ended up with 537 votes more than Gore, right? In that election 2000, 100,000 ballots were discarded in the four counties with the largest black populations, including Jacksonville, with 20-some thousand votes from black neighborhoods were discarded. Now, it, it makes one wonder why the Gore campaign didn't challenge the results in Florida on the basis of Voting Rights Act violations, rather than targeting the recount at particular counties. Uh, I think, yeah. Palm, was it yeah. Palm Beach County that was going Hanging through the chads. votes, you know, the, the Hanging Chads and the Butterfly Palatine? Um, makes one wonder. Uh, a Voting Rights Act challenge. Because remember, in 2000, Florida was still covered by Section 5, all the, all the Voting Rights Act provisions. And if some of those discarded ballots in Jacksonville had been recovered, Gore might have gotten far more than 537 votes out of that. Now, that, that's 20 years ago. Now, even today, you know, many, tens of thousands of votes, uh, mail-in ballots were discarded, even in the most recent primaries in this past spring. So your concern is... is exactly on point. Um, the the day-to-day the -day slog, uh, if you've ever been to the Board of Elections, even here in Rhode Island, when there's a contested right. mail, uh, election on the, on the basis of ballots, I've, you ever been to one of those? I, I like, know about them. <laughs> it's, 
It's Kafka. It, I've, I've been to several of them. It's Kafkaesque is the only adjective that fits, right? Where a room full of people, 20 or 30 people, a dozen lawyers, you know, members of the Board of Elections are holding up a single ballot to try to decide whether that erasure was complete or whether, you know, the pencil mark was in the wrong place or whatever. Individual, that's what they do, one ballot at a time. That's what's going to be going on all over the country. And I, I'm, I, both sides are getting prepared. It's not as though one side has an advantage over the other. The Democrats and the Republicans both have skilled election lawyers. They both will have millions of dollars to pay poll watchers and pay people to, to watch them count mail ballots and so on. There will be lawsuits on both sides. This is going to be the most painful presidential election probably in American history. Painful for the voters, painful for the candidates, painful for the local election boards, painful for everybody. Because it, will, it may very well come down to a, a relative handful of votes in a relative handful of states. Now, again, I could be wrong. There are pollsters, Harry Enten at CNN, for instance, who's arguing that this could very well be a, a Democratic blowout. I mean, the numbers of people voting for the Democratic Party, not just for president, but right up in the ballot, could overwhelm all of those challenges. As, as, as you know, even in Rhode Island, when we have a, a, an election where there are lots of mail ballots, if <clears throat> there are fewer mail ballots than the gap between the winner and the loser on the machines, there's no reason to count the mail ballots, right? Because if he, even if all the mail ballots went for the person who's behind, they, don't have enough, they won't have enough votes to catch up. That's what uh, both sides... Uh, Democrats and Republicans are hoping for, that the vote will be so lopsided in one direction or another that these uh, kind of local uh, challenges will be immaterial. Uh, it won't matter if you can win the mail vote challenge in Pennsylvania, because even if you get Pennsylvania's electoral votes, that still won't be enough to win. Okay? So that's, again, there, there are too many imponderables, unknowables. So I'm going to spend the next couple of weeks following these tracking polls and following the work of people like Harry Enten and the folks at 538.com who really, uh, real clear politics, people who have a real respect for the data and have a real understanding of survey technology. Um, I, I don't know what, I'll read the news accounts as well, but I, I have to concentrate on the data because everything else is subject to kind of the, 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 the push and pull, the tug of war that you're going to see. Uh, between the two sides. You're also going to see it in TV commercials. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, Rhode Island is not a battleground state, but we had an awful lot of Trump commercials on TV, even during the Democratic Convention. Um, why? Why is the Trump campaign spending advertising dollars in Rhode Island? I don't know. Um, but uh, there are some battleground states, as you know, where the Biden campaign is vastly outspending the Republicans at this point, and that's very unusual. Typically, the Republicans have been able to outspend the, the Democrats. Um, the, um, uh, the Democratic fundraising has also, uh, I think I after Ginsburg a, died, after a, uh, Justice Ginsburg. outpouring of money uh, and, and into a lot of Senate races. Donations interesting. Act Blue has been uh, exactly. raising a lot of money and funneling that into Senate races yeah. in places where... So what that, what that tells me is that that Election Day struggle, that you know, the, the Election Day and the week after, is going to be well-funded on both sides. And that means there'll be lots of lawyers filing challenges on both sides. There'll be lots of people watching the vote counting on both sides. And unless there's an overwhelming popular vote, which leads to an overwhelming electoral college majority for one candidate or the other, unless the, the results are clear, 
um, this election might end up in the courts and in and the sadly, counting room for a long time. Maybe even in the Supreme Court, which is which is uh, scary. Uh, I I tend if if you ask me my opinion or my gut feeling, I tend to lean towards um, Harry Enten and uh, you know the CNN polling operations perspective, which is that this is actually likely to be an overwhelming vote for the Democratic candidates all up and down the ballot. When I look at these numbers, these levels of concern, mm -hmm. not just among Latinos, but, you know, go back into the suburbs, you know, the concern people have, the fact that the Trump administration has not been able to make inroads in those suburban enclaves around Philadelphia, um, around Chicago, which used to be strongly Republican, and they're not anymore. Um, you know, if, if, if the Republican camp presidential campaign and the senatorial campaigns were going to turn, you know, to change the change the channel in those suburban right. counties, they would have done and it. And like it's that. interesting, Tony, you know, uh, this little off subject is, is you know, you know uh, generals always fight the last war. And I think Republicans are doing that over this Supreme Court situation right now uh, with the regrettable death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, they, there's all this talk. They think, well, well, if we can ram through a really conservative nominee, that's going to going to rouse up our base, and 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 those people are already uh, in Trump's camp. They're not going to expand their vote, and I think I think they, they the marginal the marginal uh, right. the marginal and, and I think is, the, all the news. I mean, my, my my sense, you know, we know as political scientists that a lot of these campaign events don't have a big impact on you know, how people eventually vote. But my sense is if it's going to have an impact, it's the, it's the hypocrisy of the Republicans sort of changing their tune and, and the appearance that this is being railroaded through quickly is likely to, if it's going to motivate anybody, it's going to motivate maybe some swing independent voters against the Republican. Well, it, yeah, but the, the Democrats are also changing their tune, right? Democratic senators right. who... In the Merrick right, Garland right, case, right. we're arguing that right. you have to let the I, I think if the Democrats are smart, so, they would just tone it down and try to ignore. Yeah, and, and remember, there's another there's another aspect to this election which is very different from 2016, and it's it's similar to the point you're making, which is the numbers of people planning to vote for third party candidates has just crashed. Uh, so the the those undecided voters, those persuadables, uh, people who in the end, right, people uh, who uh, for instance, in 2016, there was a, a fairly sizable number of voters, you know, maybe double digit, maybe 10%, but sizable number of voters who didn't like either candidate. They didn't like Trump or Clinton. They broke strongly for Trump in the last election. So Trump was able, you know, the October surprise was convincing those last minute deciders that they liked, they disliked Trump less than they disliked Clinton. There almost nobody, there's right. almost nobody in that camp this time. And to the extent that there are people who dislike both candidates, they're breaking heavily against Trump. Okay? So you've got that, the, the slice of last minute persuadables is much smaller. And to the extent that we know something about those people, they're much more likely at the last minute to vote for Biden. And so that changes the whole dynamic of the last month. And that's why I, all bets are off. I mean, I have no idea what's gonna happen in the next four or five weeks. Uh, because the, the rules of the game have changed. Um, you're, you're correct that the Republicans may be fighting the last war, but it's possible the Democrats are also fighting the last war. What I'm wondering about is whether some states that are not considered to be battleground right now turn out to be battlegrounds, right? 
um, Clinton in 2016, very late in the campaign, traveled to Arizona and gave up an opportunity to travel to Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania because the Democratic, you know, the brain trust thought that those industrial states were in the bag and they wanted to poke Trump a little bit. They wanted to troll him by sending Clinton to Arizona. Well, he won Arizona handily. It didn't do her any good in Arizona. And she ended up losing Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. But this year, right. Arizona is in play. And partly because of the Latino vote. So will the Democrats have, you know, have learned the wrong lesson? Okay, we're not going to go to Arizona. We're going to focus on Wisconsin and, and, and Michigan. You know, right. I, you've My always got that problem. In today asked me, uh, well, Professor Hudson, uh, what are the swing states? How do you know what, it, what state is a swing state? And I, I ended up saying, well, you really don't know for sure until after the election when you find out how people really voted. Right. Uh, so anyway, well, well, if you probably do this already, but 538.com and also Real Clear Politics, they, they do a pretty good job of tracking uh, public attitudes in swing states and identifying what swing states are. And the Cook Report as well right. moves states in and out of likely Biden, likely Trump. So if, if you have the time, if the voter has the time, if political science professors have the time, you can answer that question for your students, what at this moment the swing states are. But you're quite right that that's not necessarily the states that will say were the battleground well, states. Michigan was not a swing state until the votes were cast. And the Trump administration, if, or the Trump campaign, if you go back to 2016, Trump did a very good job of deflecting. You might recall Trump telling him, now keep in mind, this is the campaign that used a massive voter targeting system through Cambridge Analytica that micro-targeted voters using Facebook advertising and text messaging and so on that had this, uh, if the Senate Intelligence Committee report is to be believed, had a, a great deal of support from the Russian government and Russian intelligence agencies to disrupt of voting in individual states, individual cities. Remember a couple of places they were organizing rallies and counter rallies in the same city, you know, Black Lives Matter and anti-Black Lives So massive data-driven operation in the Trump campaign. But you recall Trump said through the whole campaign that he didn't trust big data and he didn't trust the internet and his organization, his campaign wasn't using these, you know, micro-targeting techniques. It was a complete deflection from what was actually the core strategy of his campaign. Now, which moves us to 2020 and this question of battleground states. Um, to what extent is the country confronting the same kind of misdirection and deflection now? And I think if the Democrats learn their lessons from 2016, it's, you know, don't, don't pay attention to his, you know, don't look at his eyes, watch his feet, you know, kind of thing, like so the soccer strategy, right? Don't pay any attention to what this guy says but dig as much as you can into what's actually going on. And I'll give you an example of that. We have learned in the last two weeks that the Trump administration and allies, you know, these third-party allies and super PACs, whatever, and shadowy groups that nobody knows exactly who they are, have been saturating Florida's Spanish-language social media with a whole raft of conspiracy theories about Joe Biden. I mean, it's the QAnon stuff on crack. But it's only in Spanish language media. So the, uh, uh, until recently, the English language news media in Florida had no idea this was going on. It wasn't in the news, nobody was talking about it. As far as I know, the Democratic Party organizations in Florida weren't talking about it. 
So again, under the radar. You know, remember, remember Lee Atwater and, and South Carolina and, um, uh, you know, the, the dirty tricks that were being played against, was it John McCain he was targeting? Or I, I can't remember the details, but I remember Atwater had some really clever, dirty tricks. It was the Atwater, Roy Cohn, H.R. Haldeman mentality, right? The same thing seems to be happening in Florida, specifically targeting Spanish-speaking voters to try to dis discourage, distract, deflect, confuse. And we're actually seeing, we are seeing that in a tracking poll is the numbers of Latino voters nationally who don't trust Biden is going up. It's not going up fast, it's not going up a lot, it's you know two or three percentage points, but it's moving in that direction. And it may be that the same kind of Spanish language conspiracy theory-laden micro-targeting, social media targeting, might be going mm -hmm. in another and state. as we all well. know, just a few percentage points can make a difference. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, Tony, as usual, and and really data-driven. I appreciate that. Uh, you're a great political scientist, and that's, we, we need more, more of oh, those, thank you. Uh, particularly in these, these difficult times. So thanks again for being, being with us, and uh, we'll have you back, uh, back soon, okay? Thank you so much, Bill. Uh, good, good, good health and safety to you and your loved yeah, ones. And thanks and, uh, again to Chris soon. Judge of PC's Office of Marketing and Communications for his help with this podcast. And most of all, thanks to our listeners. Please tell four friends to subscribe to Beyond Your News Feed wherever they get their podcasts.